Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The winds of change blow as President-elect Barack Obama pledges to act on climate change. When I am president, any governor who's willing to promote clean energy will have a partner in the White House. And any nation that's willing to join the cause of combating climate change will have an ally in the United States of America. Also, Obama's transition team taps a liberal think tank to help fill pivotal positions in the new administration. And U.S. hospitals undergo major surgery to green up their act. If you're getting your IV drip with a PVC medical device, it is dripping a reproductive toxin into your veins. Nobody's telling you that. That's the facts. Hospitals once enough to make you sick are on the mend. We take the pulse of the green medical movement. These stories and more are this week on Living on Earth. It's radio that's good for what ails you. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. Change was the watchword during the presidential campaign, and now that it's over, the winds of change are definitely blowing in Washington. As we reported last week, a storm was brewing among Democrats over the chairmanship of the powerful House Energy and Commerce Committee. California Representative Henry Waxman was challenging Michigan's John Dingell, who held the job for 28 years. Representative Dingell, a stalwart supporter of the auto industry, had been a longtime opponent of stiffer fuel economy standards. Congressman Waxman is a longtime champion of environmental causes. When the results were counted, Waxman won by 15 votes, delighting many environmentalists. Senator Barbara Boxer. I think Congressman Waxman uh, will be a great chairman. For me, as a Californian, I've watched Henry over the years. I could not, frankly, have a better partner as we head into these days. And I think it just signals the change, the sea change. It's momentous. The problems are momentous as well. When Congressman Waxman takes up his new chairmanship, he'll find he has a strong supporter in the White House, especially when it comes to climate change. This past week, President-elect Barack Obama laid out his plan to deal with global warming, a departure in substance and tone from the Bush administration. Living on Earth's Ashley Ahern reports. He's still two months away from taking office, but Barack Obama is tackling the issue of climate change head on. Here he is in a videotaped address to the bipartisan Governor's Climate Conference in Los Angeles. Few challenges facing America and the world are more urgent than combating climate change. The science is beyond dispute and the facts are clear. Sea levels are rising. Coastlines are shrinking. We've seen record drought, spreading famine, and storms that are growing stronger with each passing hurricane season. Climate change and our dependence on foreign oil, if left unaddressed, will continue to weaken our economy and threaten our national security. President-elect Obama told the governors his presidency will mark a new chapter of leadership on climate change. These were welcome words to California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. America has been the biggest polluter of any country in the world up until recently. And we have the big responsibility. And as a country, we have not taken on that responsibility. Washington has not taken on the responsibility of having an energy policy or an environmental policy. And this is why I was so enthusiastic to listen to the message 
of President-elect Obama to say that he wants to adopt the same regulations we have. The president-elect says fighting climate change means building a green economy that will create 5 million jobs in the U.S., lessening the nation's dependence on foreign oil and strengthening national security. Obama also plans to set limits on CO2 emissions. That will start with a federal cap-and-trade system. We'll establish strong annual targets that set us on a course to reduce emissions to their 1990 levels by 2020 and reduce them an additional 80 percent by 2050. Further, we'll invest $15 billion each year to catalyze private sector efforts to build a clean energy future. We'll invest in solar power, wind power, and next generation biofuels. We'll tap nuclear power while making sure it's safe, and we will develop clean coal technologies. These remarks indicate that the president-elect plans to make good on the climate change and energy promises he made during the campaign. The renewed pledge drew tentative praise from Nick Burning of Friends of the Earth. On balance, it's a very strong plan. He's signaling real leadership. He's signaling that he's prioritizing this issue and that he's going to work to help us win the fight against global warming. Uh, that said, there are a number of details here that we're encouraging Obama to rethink. First, we're calling for a greater uh, reduction in emissions by the year 2020. We also applaud Obama's focus on clean energy and energy efficiency, and we're hoping he'll keep the focus on those and uh, de-emphasize some of the other things he's talked about, including nuclear power and coal. The president-elect wasn't specific on how he would make nuclear power safer or coal cleaner, but he did say he would vigorously engage in international negotiations and, quote, lead the world toward a new era of global cooperation on climate change. Stopping climate change won't be easy. It won't happen overnight. But I promise you this, when I am president, any governor who's willing to promote clean energy will have a partner in the White House. Any company that's willing to invest in clean energy will have an ally in Washington. And any nation that's willing to join the cause of combating climate change will have an ally in the United States of America. Obama's speech before the nation's governors sets the stage for upcoming climate talks in Poland next month. Fu Chan Yang, vice president of Beijing-based Energy Foundation, says Obama's commitment to cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions is a challenge China will have to meet. Now the wind change, the new administration will make change. Also, this change is not only for U.S., but also in China. So here, China will exceed uh, U.S. very soon, become a number one emitters. And so when U.S. join the international community, uh, for the commitments, China have to do something. India also faces that challenge. The rapidly developing nation is a major emitter of greenhouse gases. Arvind Kumar of the Indian Forest Service attended the governor's conference in California. He heard Barack Obama's speech. He was full of confidence and conviction as far as tackling this great global climate issue is concerned. USA is number one country of the world. And the president-elect of that country, if he is confident that we are going to tackle it, I think the world will tackle it. All countries will support, irrespective of caste, color, region, any politics. It's a great issue because in this, in this particular crisis, either all of us will remain or all of us will perish. President-elect Obama won't be making an appearance at the Climate Change Summit next month in Poland, but he's requested a full report from U.S. lawmakers who will be attending. For Living on Earth, I'm Ashley Ahern. Barack Obama's position on climate change is also evident in the people he picked for his transition team. Several key members of the team have close ties to a Washington, D.C. think tank called the Center for American Progress, or CAP. 
John Podesta, co-chair of Obama's transition team, founded CAP, where he put climate change and clean energy at the forefront of its agenda. Living on Earth's Jeff Young takes us inside the Center for American Progress. In the long years that conservatives ruled Washington, liberals watched right-leaning think tanks like the Heritage Foundation with envy. Heritage dominated the national political agenda with new ideas and catchy talking points. Liberals had little to match it. So former Clinton administration chief of staff John Podesta started the Center for American Progress to help progressives get their mojo back. CAP senior fellow Bracken Hendricks says Podesta essentially stole a page from the conservatives' playbook. It's much more similar to a strategy that the conservatives and the right wing has used for a very long time. We are focused not only on developing good ideas, but on communicating those good ideas. With funding from financier George Soros and real estate billionaires Herb and Marion Sandler, CAP started small in 2003. Now its 180 employees and fellows run a sophisticated communications operation from a 10th floor suite in downtown D.C. They turn out studies on the economy and national security that frame progressive ideas in positive terms of growth and strength. Hendricks focuses on energy and global warming, issues which were quickly integrated into CAP's larger message. Instead of fighting the old economy versus environment battle, Hendricks says CAP emphasizes the potential to benefit both. Really, climate change is at the center of everything we do here. It's a fundamental piece of our, our vision of where we need to go. We're trying to govern for the long term. We're trying to take care of the public good. We're trying to take care of human needs. You can't do that unless we get on a path to a low-carbon economy. A CAP study argues that clean energy investment can generate green jobs and stimulate the economy. It shows a $100 billion investment would yield 2 million jobs, reduce greenhouse gases, and keep wealth in the country rather than losing it to oil-rich nations. The green sector, the energy sector, this investment in physical infrastructure that's been so neglected, it turns out is a tremendous place to start priming the pump of the American economy. And importantly, it moves us in the direction we need to go. The study gained traction with lawmakers who are crafting a new economic stimulus package. CAP founder John Podesta emphasized green stimulus in his testimony this year before a congressional committee on global warming. The challenge I think we face as a nation and a world is nothing short of conversion of our economy from high carbon energy, uh, putting both our national security and the health of our planet at risk to one based on low carbon sustainable sources of energy. The scale of that undertaking is immense, but its potential is also uh, enormous. I think the jobs of the future are clearly on the clean energy side. Now Podesta takes that message to one of the most influential positions in Washington. President-elect Barack Obama picked Podesta to lead his transition, overseeing selection of the people who will fill the Obama cabinet and staff the White House. Several other CAP fellows are also on the transition team. Former EPA official Bob Sussman will help select the next administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Former Clinton administration climate policy director Todd Stern will help organize the new White House team. Among his ideas, a new White House Energy Council to emphasize clean energy. CAP fellow and economist Laura Tyson, who promotes economic recovery through green jobs, is now an Obama economic advisor. And CAP distinguished fellow and former South Dakota Senator Tom Daschle was just tapped as Obama's Health and Human Services Secretary. 
Academics who think about think tanks say that's an impressive list. City College of New York political science professor Andrew Rich wrote a book called Think Tanks, Public Policy, and the Politics of Expertise. Beyond the people, what about the ideas? Will the ideas that the Center for American Progress has been talking about for the last few years, will they get given a serious hearing in the new administration? I think there's you know, reason to be optimistic that they will be for CAP, but um, yeah, we'll have to wait to see. Rich says a 650-page book Cap released shortly after the election, a progressive blueprint for the 44th president, shows the group is eager to help shape the new administration. But Cap Action Fund spokesperson Daniela Gibbs-Leger plays down the center's influence. Well, I should clarify that there is no official link between the work that CAP does and the Obama transition. I read in some of the political blogs and whatnot when there's a reference to uh, CAP, it will be followed by a phrase like, the shadow government, the government in waiting. What do you make of that? Well, that is often what we have been called for the past couple of years, and progressives have been out of power for a while. Um, So, you know, it remains to be seen how many of our ideas will be implemented by the new administration, but we're definitely going to be pushing them to do so. Gibbs-Leger is coy about CAP's newfound prominence, but there is one victory she's not too shy to brag about. On the center's reception desk stands a huge trophy. CAP won the Think Tank Softball League Championship. Yes, such a thing exists in Washington. And they won it by defeating their ideological nemesis, the conservative Heritage Foundation. Yeah, we ran with that. (laughs) This is a very good symbol. This is very good. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Just ahead, critics say the new standards for organic fish are floundering. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Fueled by bone-dry weather and whipped up by the Santa Ana winds, the recent wildfires in Southern California turned 70 square miles of land to a crisp. No deaths have been reported, but more than 10,000 residents were evacuated and nearly 1,000 homes destroyed. To help save property and contain the wildfires, thousands of gallons of fire-retarding chemicals were dropped from aircraft. But as the fires died down, the controversy over the use, and some say abuse, of fire retardants is intensifying. Andy Stahl is executive director of Forest Service Employees for Environmental Ethics. Well, we certainly are are in favor of using them more prudently. They are fertilizer, uh, ammonium phosphate and diammonium phosphate, And if dumped in streams, they are highly toxic to fish. It's as if a farmer took a slurry of liquefied fertilizer that he was going to spray on his field and instead uh, dumped 3,000 gallons into the stream. And that fertilizer kills fish for miles downstream. Um, One of the more infamous drops killed 20,000 fish in Fall River near Bend, Oregon several years ago. There's an awful a large amount of um, fire retardant chemicals being used. What, uh, 20 million gallons plus a year? Yes, and in a, in a high fire year, uh, as much as 40 million gallons dropped from these bombers. And it is a significant financial challenge for the Forest Service because this is not cheap stuff, thousands of dollars per drop. And it's often used for what we call political firefighting, to put on a good show for the public doesn't do anything effectively in fighting the fire. Well, does the stuff work? The stuff works in limited applications. The retardant doesn't put out fires. It was never designed 
to fight fires in residential areas. What it was designed to do is to prevent small fires from getting larger as they creep along the forest floor. And it's pretty good at that. What it's completely worthless at is stopping a wind-driven firestorm, such as we saw in Southern California in the last several days. There, the wind blows embers and burning branches for up to half a mile. The fire retardant line is only um, several tens of feet wide. And so in a wind-driven firestorm, retardant is worthless. Well, what would you do in the case of the Santa Ana fires? I mean, we can't just let these things blaze to the coast, can you? There's also not a heck of a lot you can do to prevent it. Notice in the news, what you hear is firefighters gain an advantage on fire when the wind drops, when it rains. But when the winds are blowing 70 miles an hour, the humidity is 3%. There's nothing firefighters can do, period. Well, if your house were in the line of a a wind-driven wildfire, wouldn't you want the firefighters to use something? Well, if my house was in the line of a wind-driven fire, I would want to make sure my house was built properly. That's the only secure way of ensuring that my house won't burn. If it has a fire-resistant roof, fire-resistant siding, and if the vegetation is cleared out about 100 feet from the house, then I'll be quite confident that my house will survive a wildfire. Your organization is now suing the U.S. Forest Service over the use of fire retardant chemicals. What's the suit about, and and what are you looking for? We want to force the Forest Service to disclose the real environmental costs and benefits of firefighting. Our lawsuit is a means to change the way our society approaches fire. We have to learn how to live with fire rather than fight a war against it. Well, Mr. Stahl, thanks. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Andy Stahl is Executive Director of Forest Service Employees for Environmental Ethics. It's based in Eugene, Oregon. Now joining me on the line is Tom Harbour. He's the National Director for Fire and Aviation Management for the U.S. Forest Service. And Mr. Harbour, thank you very much. Glad to be with you, Bruce. To hear Mr. Stahl tell it, the the Forest Service is, is poisoning our landscape in order to save it. We believe we're putting another tool in the toolbox of our uh, professional wildland firefighters for them to use when they deem it necessary. Well, what is appropriate in terms of these? I mean, when would you want to use a fire retardant? What kind of fire? We use retardants to help us uh, lower the intensity of a fire that we can get in closer to than with those boots on the ground. You've seen retardant used effectively around uh, communities under the uh, proper conditions of uh, not too much wind when these aircraft can be flying. You know, Andy Stahl says that these chemicals weren't intended to be used near, you know, communities. He also charges that um, they're just PR drops, you know, that just done for uh, the benefit of showing the public that Forest Service is doing something, even if it doesn't work. As the leader of the wildland fire folks in the Forest Service, I'll tell you that fire retardants can help with the ebb and flow 
a fire as they uh, move. Fire retardants are especially effective because once the water evaporates from the mix, they still have fire retardant qualities. We've uh, used these chemicals safely for uh, 40 years, and I hope we get to use them uh, 40 years into the future. We've got a good tool here. Tom Harbor is the National Director for Fire and Aviation Management for the U.S. Forest Service. Mr. Harbor, thank you very much. Thank you, Bruce. The production of organic food is heavily regulated. Farmers who want to label their food organic can't use pesticides, hormones, or artificial fertilizers, and they must feed livestock an organic diet. It's a big business and growing, but until now, there was no such thing as an organic fish. Organic beef, broccoli, and butter, yes, but organic fish, no. However, that could soon change. The National Organic Standards Board, which advises the USDA in these matters, has voted in favor of creating standards so fish farmers can also go organic. Joining me to talk about the vote is Patty Lavera. She's Assistant Director of Food and Water Watch, a nonprofit consumer group based in Washington, D.C. Hi, Ms. Lavera. Thanks for having me. Now, the advisory group to the USDA has decided that farm-raised fish can be called organic, or at least some can. Which farm-raised fish can be called organic? So what the the National Organic Standards Board did was set out a recommendation to the USDA, and USDA now has to write the rules for how you would certify farmed fish as organic. And there were a couple controversial pieces in that recommendation they made, and they said that farm-raised fish that are raised in something called open net pens, which are you know open to the environment, they're often done out in the open ocean, uh, that those could be possibly organic, and that fish that were fed up to 25% wild fish in their diet could be certified as organic. And those are both very controversial uh, decisions because we think they, our group and lots of other groups think that it contradicts the real basic principles of organic production. They can use 25% of wild fish in the organic fish's feed. Now, a fish like tilapia can can be raised on grain, so you can feed it 100% organic grain and call it organic, I guess, under this ruling. But salmon eat other fish. So if a salmon eats a wild fish and that wild fish is not organic, the farm-raised salmon is still considered organic? Right. We believe you can't really certify something as organic if you're not in control of its production. I mean, one of the the core principles of organic is that you're controlling the inputs and the outputs from that system. And so how do you certify something that's wild? Um, That gets hard to do if you don't know what it was eating, you don't know how it was, you know, how it grew up. So that's been a controversial piece, and and there's still unresolved issues there within organic. But what we do know is that other livestock, other organic animals that become food, they're supposed to eat 100% organic feed. And this is a really gaping loophole to set an exemption so high at 25% to let, you know, let this industry off the hook that other industries have to meet. 
there was another approach that the NOSB could have taken. They could have started with the stuff that's a lot more compatible with organic production methods, and those are vegetarian fish in closed systems where you don't have a lot of water flowing in and out and the possible pollution that comes from that. They chose not to do that. They chose to go for kind of the whole enchilada and deal with the whole aquaculture industry and, and give them a way into organic. And we think that's just overreaching, and it, it just misses the point of that the fact that they're supposed to set standards not just open the door for anybody that wants to come get this label. Well, let's talk about the the Penn's vote. That is, they voted overwhelmingly, uh, 10 to 4, to allow uh, organic-raised fish to be raised in these open pens. So what's the problem there? Well, we have a concern with anybody using these open net pens in the open ocean. I mean, we've been very active trying to stop the promotion of this with any label on it, let alone organic. It's a very controversial method. You know, we know that the fish escape. And so if you have different species, you know, breeding with the wild fish, that can damage their genetics. We know that the pollution caused by confining that many fish together flows out of these pens and can pollute the surrounding environment. You know, we know there's so many risks with doing this type of production anywhere. And then to call it organic uh, is just really disturbing. The board did try to put some strings on it. And they said, oh, you know, be careful where you cite it. You know, don't put this kind of fish in this kind of environment because of the escape possibility. But none of the strings that they put on it are enough. To your way of thinking, then, can um, there be an organic fish or is that an oxymoron? We think that you could come up with a way to have organic farmed fish that was compatible with organic standards if you start at an appropriate level, which is like we talked about the vegetarian fish. You can do it in a closed system. There's you know ways that you can do it if you keep those principles at the center of it. But when you start branching out to these carnivorous fish, to these systems that are out in the open ocean or, you know, out in bodies of water, that's when you kind of lose it on organic. Well, who has been advocating this? Who benefits uh, from this decision? I mean, there is an aquaculture industry, you know, globally that wants in on the organic market. I mean, they see the growth in organic. They see consumers' response to it. And they're looking for that label, that stamp of approval. And there's been more coverage of the environmental damage of a lot of types of of aquaculture. And I think they're looking for something to kind of deal with that stigma and say, no, we're really, look at us, we're good, we're organic. And so at every meeting, there's a bunch of us saying, don't do it. And there's also a bunch of companies saying, come on, come on, let us in. We can do it. We can do it. We're good. Check us out. We're environmentally safe. And it's, you know, it's a real it's a real show, usually during the public comment period from both sides. You know, Ms. Lavera, the organic farming has had uh, positive effects on, on land use and it's been good for people to eat. Wouldn't it be a, a good to introduce that kind of farming to our oceans? Well, that was a really popular comment from the members of the board during the discussion about this issue. And it's kind of an enticing argument. It can kind of suck you in. Um, but our response to that is that the job of the National Organic Standards Board and the the integrity of organic depends on really holding fast to a set of organic principles, which are animals eat, organic feed. You minimize environmental impact. You promote biodiversity. Not that you just do slightly better than your competitors who are conventional. I mean, it's had the impact of cleaning up practices because the industries had to reach a standard to get that that seal. Well, I want to thank you very much, Ms. Lavera. All right. Thanks. Patty Lavera is Assistant Director of Food and Water Watch. We were also scheduled to speak with Dr. Hubert Carriman, the chairman of the advisory board to the USDA's organic program. But unfortunately, Dr. Carriman had to cancel our interview at the last minute. 
We're just a flock of turkeys who got the Thanksgiving blues. Around this time of year, the turkey reluctantly takes its place of honor on dinner tables across the nation. Just trot down to your local store and you'll find that 99% of the birds ready for roasting are the same breed, the broad-breasted white. That's certainly not the kind the pilgrims may have feasted on that first Thanksgiving so long ago, but today ancient varieties of turkeys are making a comeback. People are increasingly flocking to the old turkey taste, as Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom discovered down on a Massachusetts farm. Kate Stillman runs a family farm. Behind her mustard-colored farmhouse, small fields bordered by stone walls are dotted with sheep and turkeys. But these are no ordinary turkeys. If you look at the heritage turkeys, their heads are beautiful. These are blue slates that we're looking at. And most of their head is this iridescent light sky blue color with a red neck. And, I mean, the colors are fantastic, but they're very reptile looking. Kate and her husband Aiden raised 50 heritage turkeys this year. They also raised about 200 of the more conventional white turkeys. If you take a look at the white ones versus, you know, the colored ones or the heritage ones, and you can see there is a difference with their build and how they look. The heritage ones are, well, they look like they don't have that big a breast. You know, they're a little leaner, slimmer birds. But a trim turkey with a small breast isn't what most people want on their Thanksgiving table. For whatever reason, Americans love the breast and the white meat. Andrew Smith is a turkey historian. He wrote the book on turkeys, literally. His book, Turkey, an American Tale, traces the history of our favorite fowl. The first European explorers took wild American turkeys back to Europe, where breeders started to raise them for their feathers. And that's their names, black and white and bourbon red and buff and slate, etc. The exception to that, of course, was the bronze turkey, which uh, was the largest heritage breed and had the largest breast. That broad-breasted bronze was crossed with the Holland white to create the turkey we know today, the broad-breasted white. 73 million of them will be eaten over the holidays. Smith says most of them are raised on factory farms. They've had their toes snipped off uh, a few days after their birth. They've had their beaks snipped off in order to uh, prevent uh, turkeys from attacking each other, which they do in confined spaces. Milton Madison, senior agricultural economist at the USDA, says most turkeys are kept in big barns. As for removing beaks and toes, he describes it as more of a turkey pedicure. At times, the um, toes and beaks will be trimmed slightly so that they're a little more blunt, similar to trimming your fingernails so that you don't scratch yourself or others around you. Raising free-range heirloom turkeys is more expensive than mass-producing them. They cost three times as much to buy as babies and take several months longer to mature. A heritage turkey from the Stillmans will cost $100, compared with about 60 for the traditional birds. But people are willing to pay. Don Schreider of the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy says that's going to help save these birds from extinction. If people eat heritage turkeys, then more breeding stock is maintained, and then the next season more heritage turkeys can be produced, and it actually gives them a job and the population grows. The number of heirloom birds has increased eightfold in the last 10 years. Farmer Kate says people like the taste of the old-fashioned birds. 
The heritage birds have a higher percentage of dark meat, which for dark meat lovers, I mean, that's usually the more flavorful part of the turkey. Almost everybody who ordered a turkey from us last year has ordered two turkeys. So I don't know whether they're thinking they're going to pop one in the freezer and keep it for Christmas or something like that, but people raved about the turkeys. The demand's been so great this year that the Stillmans actually ran out of heirloom birds. You know, I had somebody call me this morning, and she said to me, Oh, please, Kate, can, you know, can we get a turkey from you? We've been away. I really wanted to call, and she's a really good customer. We were supposed to be saving two turkeys for my aunt for Thanksgiving, and I called my mother, and I'm like, Well, you guys are only getting one turkey, because I really couldn't say no to her. And so come Thursday, the Stillmans might go without a heritage turkey at the center of their table. But they'll have made a lot of Massachusetts families very happy. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom. She big a fist, big a nice and clean. She big good enough for the queen. She's a turkey big mama. She's a turkey big mama. Coming up, they're enough to make you sick, so hospitals are going green. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Attention shoppers, Walmart, the world's largest retailer, has some big changes in store for its biggest supplier, China. Next year, Chinese companies that produce about $9 billion worth of goods for Walmart will have to come clean and comply with Walmart's new environmental and labor requirements. Among other things, it means manufacturers will have to cut energy consumption by 20%. The new goals were recently announced at a sustainability summit in Beijing. Andrew Winston helps companies go green. He's founder of Winston Eco Strategies, and he attended the summit where Walmart explained the new policy. Well, right now, what they laid out in China was a set of goals and standards and very tough statements about what they would expect from their suppliers. And they've been working on sustainability at Walmart for a couple years, and they've been working hard on supplier issues because they realized that the biggest part of their impact was not really their own operations, as big as they are. It's it's what happens upstream, as they say, with all the products and where they're made. And, and there was only so long they could work on supply issues without going to China. China supplies, you know, 70, 80 percent of the toys in the world, a huge chunk of the apparel, et cetera, et cetera. So they had to go there. And what they've said is very tough goals. They said you have to meet certain environmental and social standards. You have to comply with the law in China, which is not what most manufacturers do. And if you don't, this is the big aha there was, if you don't, we will drop you as a supplier. And that was what made the the meeting, I thought, historic, because I've never seen a company do that, say outright, we will drop you and ban you, as Lee Scott said, ban you from selling products to Walmart. And Lee Scott is the CEO of Walmart. That's right. Um, it was it was an impressive performance. But is Walmart willing to pay more for, say, you know, a cleaning product? Well, there was, you know, there was a really sort of fun, interesting moment at this event where um, the CEO of FedEx was there, the CEO of Waste Management, and Jeffrey Katzenberg, the co-CEO of DreamWorks, the studio, uh, was there moderating a panel on consumers. And, and on the panel was the chief merchandiser for Walmart. And Katzenberg asked him, you know, hey, you've set all these goals. Will you pay an extra nickel for products if they're more environmentally sustainable? 
you know, this is a you know, metaphorical nickel, say on a gallon of milk or whatever. And he said, we'd want to know what's in that nickel. And then we'd try to find ways to cut, which is the classic Walmart answer. And then Katzenberg wouldn't let him get away. And he said, well, okay, but once you've looked at it and it just costs more to be cleaner for the time being, are you going to pay that nickel? And, and you know, the executive basically said, well, as long as we know transparently what's in it, um, yes, I think we would. There were sort of gasps in the room, you know, from some of the suppliers because they don't hear that. Uh, in the past, as this executive said, we've asked for, you know, price cut and we haven't really cared, you know, how they did it. Well, now we want to know what's going into that price. Well, is the better question, you know, are um, Walmart customers, am I willing to pay more for a more sustainable product? Well, it's sort of the critical, the critical question. I think the number of people who will pay more for green or sustainable products is still pretty small, and it's probably going to stay small, especially now in, in tight times. But there's sort of a different group of consumers, which is the what some people call conflicted consumers or conscious consumers, people who want more from their products. They, they think about where the product came from or how much energy it uses, and they care about those issues. Uh, nearly as much as they care about the price and quality. But they want those things, I, I think, for, with no trade-offs. And that's the big goal, I think, in, in sustainable products, finding ways to satisfy customers and satisfy their environmental and social needs without asking them to pay more. You know, Mr. Winston, this isn't the, um, the first time Walmart has promised to clean up its act. I, I know a number of years ago it said, okay, we're going to be 100% renewable energy. We're going to have right. zero waste. Those haven't happened. No, they haven't yet. They set some, as they call them, aspirational goals. I think that's fair. I think companies should do that. There's lots of companies who say we're going to be zero waste. Very, very few have found a way to that actual goal, but it is, it's directional. It tells people what they should be shooting for. Now, I think a company the size and, and recognition level of Walmart is only going to be given so much time to keep saying things. They're going to have to hit some of their goals. Now, on some they have. The goals that they've set that are much more specific, like we're going to reduce energy use in stores by 20% or our trucks, uh, we're going to increase the fuel efficiency 20 25%. They are well on their way on, on some of those goals. But isn't there something inherently um, unsustainable about the Walmart business model? That is, um, you know, they, they ship millions of tons of stuff around the world and encourage people to buy, 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 consume, consume, yeah. consume. Yeah, it's a really fascinating issue of what happens after an initial phase. Right now, what they're asking is, you know, resource conservation fundamentally, and that saves money. So that fits their business model. But what, you know, you're asking a pretty important question, which is what happens when you get to the point of, okay, we've made it very lean, but does it make sense to ship from China? Now, I'd say that part of that gets answered if we get the price of energy right. If energy prices are very high, shipping things from all over the world may turn out not to be the most economical. So it some of that should work itself out through natural market forces. But there's a fundamental mismatch in asking people to buy a lot of stuff. Walmart did something, I think, also more subtle but also historic in this meeting. They talked about quality a lot, which they're not known for. You know, no one would claim they're known for quality products. But Lee Scott said, he said almost uh, word for word, you know, people want socks that don't fall down after they, they've been washed. They want things that last longer. So they're saying to their suppliers, make better products that last longer. That's actually somewhat of a disconnect with their business model. Their model is to sell you stuff over and over again. So I think it's pretty profound that they're saying, hey, higher quality, products that last longer, that makes them more sustainable. That's where the world's going, um, and we're going to get ahead of that curve. That's you know true leadership if they follow through on it. They're going to start phasing in this initiative in China starting in January 2009, and then right. worldwide by 2011. And I'm thinking, you know, so goes Walmart. 
so goes the world. That's right. I mean, they are that big. If they can make this happen, one of the one of the goals they've set was that 95% of the product that they buy from Chinese suppliers will have to be from firms that are in compliance with all these audits. Now, that's a monumental number because, as um, someone else said, one of the other speakers, something like 25% of the wastewater from factories in China is treated. So 75% are sort of out of compliance by definition. So getting to 95% that are in compliance is is a, a monumental task in, in a country like China. And I think if we get to a point where we look back in a few years, five, whatever years, and say, well, China's actually a lot cleaner, so is the world, this will be one of those turning points. Well, Mr. Winston, I want to thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Bruce. Andrew Winston is the founder of Winston Eco Strategies and co-author of the book, Green to Gold. About a dozen years ago, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency reported that medical waste incinerators in hospitals were the largest source of deadly dioxins in the country. The disclosure shook the medical community and led to the creation of an organization that takes its name from the doctor's Hippocratic Oath. Gary Cohn is the executive director of Healthcare Without Harm. We thought how ironic that is that hospitals whose mission is to heal people are contributing to environmentally related disease in the society. And we said we need to redefine that first do no harm ethic means, and it means to clean up your act. The hospitals quickly cleaned up their act. The number of medical waste incinerators went from 5,600 to fewer than 70 still operating today. And Healthcare Without Harm has become a worldwide coalition of nearly 500 organizations in more than 50 countries. The mission? Hospitals Heal Thyself. Go green. The group led the effort to safely rid medical facilities of toxic mercury found in thermometers and blood pressure devices. But Cohn says there are still things in hospitals that can make you sick. And in the case of patients, if you're getting your IV drip with a PVC medical device, it is dripping a reproductive toxin into your veins. Nobody's telling you that. That's the facts. And so our challenge to the hospitals have been, look, can't we build cancer centers without carcinogens? Can't we build pediatric units without chemicals linked to birth defects and, and asthma? This is what healthcare needs to do. They haven't looked at, except for the last you know, number of years, they haven't looked at the environmental health impacts of their operations and their buildings and the stuff they buy. From bedpans and surgical gloves to operating rooms and MRI machines, hospitals are enormously expensive to build, equip, and operate. And when it comes to making life-saving decisions, administrators aren't about to worry about buying energy-saving devices. Still, medicine is starting to use the power of the purse to go green. Architect Robin Gunther is co-author of the book Sustainable Healthcare Architecture. Healthcare is 17% of the gross domestic product. So healthcare purchasing represents a huge market leverage around any goods and services that hospitals buy. This is not brain surgery to save energy and water in a hospital. This is common sense kind of stuff. Paul Levy is CEO and president of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. It's a teaching hospital, one of three in Boston's Longwood Medical Area. It has 3 million square feet of space, 7,000 employees, and a $1.2 billion budget. Levy's first priority is patient care. His second is green, as in money, not green as in the environment. 
much of the energy work and the environmental work in hospitals is driven more by cost issues than by a desire to make the world cleaner and reduce carbon emissions and the like. But that's okay because they end up being the same program anyway. Cutting costs and emissions in hospitals requires a healthy dose of technology. The prescription calls for using automated devices that control lights and temperature, the flow of air and water. Most of these devices are hidden in walls and out of sight. But at Beth Israel Deaconess, some sensors can see you. And it's your traditional vending machine. It's got a picture on the front that's brightly lit. It has a refrigerator built in to keep the drinks cool. And on the top of the machine is a little sensor. Oh, look at that. I wouldn't have ever looked up there. There it is, a little sensor that keeps track of how many people are walking by it. And when it detects that the traffic has dropped, it powers down the machine the same way your computer would go into rest mode. Vending machines are energy vampires, so hospital utility manager Mark Lukic has installed automatic detection devices to curb their appetite. He says small change can add up. We're able to save probably uh, with the 26 units we installed over the next 10 years, somewhere in the $70,000 $70, range, just for a simple little device that uh, has a payback of less than a year. Again, hospital CEO Paul Levy. The thing is about the hospital buildings, because they're so big and because they're so energy intensive, you can make a minor modification in the operation of the building and actually result in a fairly substantial savings. Down the street from Boston's Beth Israel is Brigham and Women's Hospital. It has nearly twice as many employees, 13,000. It's a big business. It's a big business. About um, 9,000 babies are born here every year, where it's the biggest uh, birthing center in New England, and one of the biggest in the country, actually. Art Mamboquet is vice president of support services at Brigham and Women's. The hospital is a city unto itself. A hallway a quarter of a mile long called The Pike connects buildings. We're, we're walking on one of our, our green initiatives. This corridor is uh, in the process of being replaced. It's an old um, vinyl composition tile that we're, we're ripping out and uh, replacing it with a, a renewable product. It's a, a rubber product. Not only is it a renewable product, it, it also um, doesn't require any floor finishes, which means it doesn't need any harsh chemicals to clean the finish off when it, when it yellows. So much better for uh, the people who need to clean it. It's also softer to, to walk on. It's a, it's, a, it's a nice product. It's quiet. It's very quiet. The long hallway leads to Brigham's newest building, the Shapiro Cardiovascular Center. 300,000 square feet of highly specialized space. It's certified silver lead. It was designed green from the get-go. No new parking spaces were added. Instead, employees were given mass transit passes. Houses that once stood on the property were moved, recycled, in a sense, to preserve the community. And inside the building's soaring atrium, special glazing was used on glass to reduce heating and cooling needs. And every patient's room has floor-to-ceiling windows. The, the patient rooms actually slope up at the window, so literally funneling light into the room. This is a hospital. Can the things that you've changed, letting in more light, using environmentally sound cleaning materials, can that help save people's lives or improve their health? I think there's, there's beginning to be evidence that that is a true statement. 
And so while it's a little bit difficult to quantify, there is beginning to be evidence that natural light helps healing. Studies show hospital patients with an outside view suffer fewer complications, need less pain medication, and are discharged sooner. Similar benefits have been found in hospitals where family members can stay overnight. And many hospitals are starting to build green roofs to bring nature closer to patients. And they're improving the food they serve, buying organic and locally grown. It's all part of what's called evidence-based design. It's a concept that architect Robin Gunther says expands the definition of what constitutes healthcare. Buildings ultimately are the clothing that we put on our institutions. Buildings embody all of our values. So when you inhabit a green building, it changes how you think about who you are and what you're doing. At Boston's Beth Israel Deaconess, changes in architecture are changing attitudes. Community director Jane Matlaw founded Healthy Work, Healthy Home, a program encouraging employees to bring new green ideas to the hospital. And now I have people calling me frequently saying, why aren't we doing this? Could we be doing this? And how do we do that? And how do we make it better? So it's really gone from, oh, you're kind of a a lunatic, you know, out there doing your thing, um, to this is something people really have embraced. The benefits from going green, says Bill Ravenisi, Boston Director of Healthcare Without Harm, will pay for themselves in more ways than money. There's a big transformation. There's a, we have a green tsunami around us right now, and what we're seeing is a transformation in the thinking in healthcare going from a mindset that says, let's build an institution into a different kind of vision, and this vision is a healing environment. The green wave has gone mainstream, and hospitals, their workers, their patients, and communities are the better for it. Our story about green hospitals was reported with the help of Annie Gia. On the next Living on Earth, they may be extinct, but dinosaurs are making a comeback in the toy store. Once she snuggled up with one of my stuffed animals and then fell asleep with it. And there's one other time when she was in my room, she like stood on two legs and said, ta-da. Robosaurs come alive next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in a cold woodland at dusk with a murder. A murder of crows, that is. Five carrion crows calling through the blustery winds in Woodchester Park in Gloucestershire, England. Richard Margotius recorded the scene of the murder for the British Library National Sound Archive. It's on the CD, Wild Britain. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young with the help of Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. 
Our interns are Sandra Lawson and Jesse Martin. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life, information at gatesfoundation.org, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing, Pax World for tomorrow on the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.